Well, as you know, <clears throat> we uh, started uh, the last time we were together getting into Hebrews uh, chapter uh, 11. And uh, certainly <clears throat> it's one of the great chapters, uh, not only in the book of Hebrews, but also in the whole Bible. <clears throat> and it's built around, you know, 16 people who uh, God really lifts up for us uh, under the concept of really defining faith. And that's, we did that last time, and I showed you the, the fundamental uh, aspect of faith was the, uh, in the first three, four, uh, three verses there, was uh, in the idea of atomic structure, uh, who God is, uh, what God is. You know, it's a thing where people get, um, they get misconceptions about God, you know, and, you know, they, they don't understand his form, I guess it would be. And, uh, you know, you get ideas of it in the Bible. He's talked about light. He's talked about brightness. <clears throat> he's talked about, you know, but God, is, we're told, is a spirit. He doesn't have a body as God the Father. He has a body uh, as God the Father in Jesus Christ. Somebody's car's out there is, is trying to let us all know that. That's all right. Your battery will be dead by the time you get out there today. It'll be okay. No problem. Uh, everybody run out and check your car. Yeah. Okay. Modern marvels of technology. Anyway, what we find here is a defining of faith. And it's a great picture of our own, you know, what we are to be. And these people in here that we're going to look at in one way or the other will add to that idea or the teaching and the concept of what faith really is. And you see it, you know, uh, in, like I said in the first three, that faith is is based on atomic structure. He says there that the, the uh, things, uh, uh, the evidence of things not, um, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And we know that is, you know, the everything is held together by, uh, by atoms. And we talked about that, things that are held together that you can't see. And <clears throat> so we went into it in great detail, talked about God uh, as a light. We talked about uh, um solar radiation, cosmic radiation, and the whole nine yards that fills the uh, second heaven, one from the sun, which is a type of Christ, the other one from, you know, an unknown source, which we know is God, God's throne. So, you know, we, we went through all of that and, uh, and, and, then, and, and laid all that out, going to Malachi chapter 3, going to a, a lot of good places that you have everything uh, laid out for you. So we're going to start in verse 4 today. <coughs> And we're going to begin to see uh, these the, the, these people as we start to come through. And not only, uh, like I said, if, if you want a definition for you and for me of what faith should be, you know, we always think that <clears throat> faith is stepping out blindly, you know, 
<clears throat> uh, when you don't know something or you don't see something, you just step out on a limb and trust God, and that's supposed to be faith. <clears throat> that's not the faith of the Bible. The faith of the Bible is never stepping out into the unknown. The faith of the Bible, <clears throat> as you'll see laid out in these guys' lives, <clears throat> the faith of the Bible will always be looking back at what God did and how he brought you through and then knowing that based on that, he's going to get you through whatever you face tomorrow <clears throat> or <clears throat> whatever you're up against. So that's what, you want to, that's what you want to remember. And he basically starts in the beginning of the Bible <clears throat> and, and then works the way through, which I think is, is interesting and, you know, and it, it, it helps us. So he says, first of all, he says, by faith, verse 4, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained a witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. And, you know, the uh, first one he talks about here is Abel. And we all know the story of Cain and Abel. And, uh, you know, you can go back through these and, you know, and develop the idea of faith. Abel didn't have a Bible. Abel didn't have any kind of, of uh, written record of anything that God told him to do. Abel is very early in when, what God is opening up and doing with, with, with Adam and Eve. And uh, yet he knew about the aspect of offering up a sacrifice. And uh, this was way before the law. Uh, Job did the same thing way before the law. And it's a, in Ab, uh, Abraham did way before the law. These guys, because of their relationship with God without a Bible, and obviously Abel had the, the instruction from his father, uh, Adam, on what he should be doing because, you know, Adam got it straight from God and he knew what he was supposed to do. And he would have went back and understood that in the garden when they fell, the first thing that God did, the first sacrifice in the Bible, before Abel ever does his, the first sacrifice in the Bible was God taking something innocent and then killing it uh, to cover the, the nakedness of Adam and Eve. So he would have known that. And, you know, I'm sure that these mom and dad passed the stories down through other uh, kids, uh, and these kids passed it on through their kids, and it was an ongoing thing that, uh, you know, what God had done and what they expected, and that's how they, they picked it up. But then you have, you know, the story of Cain and Abel, and Cain and Abel is a, you know, is a picture of, it's an incredible picture of, of so many things, but obviously, fundamentally, in a practical way, it's a picture of a saved man and an unsaved man. And Abel is a picture of a saved man, and uh, Cain is a picture of, of an unsaved man. And it's a thing where Abel offered up the right sacrifice. He says a more excellent. And if you go back to the story, you know, he takes one of the firstlings of the flock, and he offers up, uh, you know, based on, what, based on what his dad had told him about what God had done to cover their nakedness, he knew it was to be a sheep or a lamb, and so, you know, that's, he follows in that suit and he, he does what he does. So he's a great picture and it says that he, uh, a more excellent sacrifice. Then we have Cain on the other hand. And Cain, you know, obviously 
he is a picture of an unsaved man. And it's a thing where the Bible says that where one was a keeper of sheep, Abel, the other one was a tiller of the ground. And right out of the chute, you begin to see where there's going to be a problem here. Cain very clearly is against everything that that uh, God is trying to do. And there's some reasons for that, which we're not going to bother getting into this morning. But he is, Bible says he's of that wicked one. And he's against everything that God is trying to do there. And he was not happy uh, when God did not accept his sacrifice. He brought, where Abel brought of the sheep, he brought of the first things of his, his crops. And, you know, he brings those there, and God, Bible says, has respect unto Abel's and not under Cain. And the reason for that is, is that, you know, he brought what his own labor of his hands brought forth. It's a picture of a man looking to himself or his works or whatever he wants to do to try to get salvation through that. And, of course, God didn't have respect to it. And there's so much in the story that, you know, that you can go back and glean out of. You know, even though Cain made the wrong sacrifice, and, boy, this is so true in dealing with people. Even though Cain made the wrong sacrifice, God was not so hard-lined about it that he just shut the door on him. He tells him, hey, what are you upset about? Why has that countenance fallen, which is a great key in itself dealing with people. He says, if, if, if you go get the right sacrifice, I'll accept it. He says, Cain, there is no reason for you to be upset. All you have to do is what's right. And boy, I'll tell you, every one of these stories is a treasure trove of, of dealing with people. You know, in whatever we do in life, whatever mistakes we make in life or whatever happens in life, there's no reason for us to get out of fellowship with God about it or, or let it take us to the point where it takes us out of what God wants us to do. Because the model there with Cain, who brought the wrong sacrifice, all he had to do was take that fruit of his hands, trade it off to Abel for a lamb and make the right sacrifice and everything would have been fine. It shows that when people don't want to do what's right, no matter where it may be, when people don't want to do what's right, it'll always be because the real attitude is not toward the person that they're displaying it, but against God and the Word of God himself. There is no, and I, you know, I talked about this a couple of weeks ago on Sunday morning, how that they're, you know, that, you know, people get into, into, difficulties with each other and, and, and problems happen in any church and it's just the way that it is. And, you know, that's just human nature. But, you know, and people will say, well, this person did this or this person said that or this person did this. And, and you know, you're caught in it like Solomon many times. And, you know, there has to be an absolute sterling silver platform that you have to work on. And it is simply this. It isn't about who said what or who did what. We saw that with Cain. He didn't make the right sacrifice. All he had to do was do the right thing, and God would have accepted it. And you'll always know when push comes to shove between two people or whatever, the person who won't do what's right, the person who won't sit down and work it out and come to terms with it, whatever the case may be, find out who said what, who did what, and then work it out from there, 
will always be the person that was the problem. And I'm telling you right now, Cain is the model of that because the reason why they won't is because the reason that Cain didn't. Cain had a golden opportunity. In fact, God tells him, you got two choices, Cain. If you do what's right, we can fix this and solve this. But if you don't, sin lieth at the door. And that's exactly what the choice, he, the choice he took. So, you know, many of God's people, they get too caught up in all the drama of people's lives and people's problems and people's issues. For me, it's a very simple thing. You got a problem, sit down, lay it on the table. Let's find out who said what, who did what. The one who's wrong, say I'm sorry to the one who's not wrong. Uh, but when you find that people won't do that, then you know that the problem lies with them just like it did with Cain. And it isn't really about the issue. It's about the attitude they have toward the biblical principles that tells you this is what you need to do. And, you know, there's no getting around that. And, uh, you know, a lot of God's people cut God's people a lot of slack when they shouldn't simply because of the fact that, uh, you know, they're not doing what's right by applying the principles to fix whatever problem. If every church and every Christian would follow that, we wouldn't have any problems in Christianity that could not be fixed. So Cain and Abel here is a great picture of this, and it's a great model that uh, Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice. Now, I'll tell you this, too. It wasn't the fact that Abel got inside information and Cain didn't get that's not the case. There's a deeper root problem here with Cain, and that goes back to the fact that he got the same teaching uh, from Adam and Eve that Abel got. He heard the same stories. Uh, he had to know, I mean, he had to know that when Adam and Eve first fell, they covered themselves in fig leaves. I mean, he's a tiller of the ground. Fig trees give off figs out of the ground, the tree. He had to know that. I mean, it wasn't like he didn't understand these things. And a lot of times people, you know, they, they just, they cut people too much slack when it comes to something like this because they think, well, that person, you know, really doesn't understand that. No, no. Abel, Abel and Cain and Abel knew exactly what the situation was. He knew that when Adam and Eve sinned, just like Abel did, that they tried to put fig leaves and God didn't accept that. He also knew that what God did was kill something innocent and then cover their nakedness with that. He knew that. And just like a lot of God's people today know what the Bible says about issues. They know what the Bible says about whatever. They just like Cain, they choose to follow it. They don't want to do it. And that's, you know, that's where the problem is. And yet it says there that he obtained uh, witness that he was righteous, uh, God testifying of his gifts, the offering that he made, uh, and by it being dead, yet speaketh. It shows you that Abel died around 4,000 B.C. Uh, when he got killed by Cain. And yet his, his gift, what he did, still speaks to us today. It goes to show you that, that in our lives, the legacy of what we do, good and bad, carries on long after we're gone. And it's a thing where, you know, the story of Cain and Abel has been told countless millions of times uh, just in the last 2,000 years of the church age. I mean, there's been messages preached on it. There's been Bible studies on it, books on it. You name it. 
Um, you know, and it's a thing where it, in Abel's case, even though he was dead, what he did lived on. And, uh, you know, and then uh, the other side to it, when God finally came to Cain, um, he says, you know, what have you done? And Cain says, well, I don't know. I haven't done anything. And, and God says, your brother's blood crieth to me from the ground. And uh, it goes to show you that, you know, it's not over when we die because the legacy of what you do for God, uh, the more excellent sacrifices that you make will carry on um, you know, long after, long after you're gone. Martin Luther's been dead now for, for 400, 500 years. I mean, the Waldensians died out in 1200. The Anabaptists in 16, 1700. Yet the, the, the sacrifices that they made go on. And we learn from them today. And so, you know, the first one here uh, about faith, and I'm going to come back and show you how that the first four here in a minute, really set up the idea of, of a life of faith, what it really is. There's four aspects to your life as a faithful Christian, and you're found here in Hebrews chapter 11 in the first four characters here. Then the next one is in verse 5, and he says, By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him for before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Now, when you go back to the study and you start to move past Cain and Abel, and you know, and Abel, uh, Cain kills Abel and all that stuff, when you start to move past that, then you start to get into the uh, story of Enoch. And Enoch, in our in our picture back there coming through Genesis, he'll be a picture of of you and me. And you're going to find that in 5 and 6, verse 5 and 6 here, when he lays Enoch out, it's a perfect picture of where your life and my life should be. So you go back and you, you, you look at Enoch, and Enoch, the Bible says, walked with God and was not for God took him. That's the translation or the translate here that he found. And, you know, God raptured him out, took him out. And Enoch is a type in a picture of the church. And these things are vital to us to understand our relationship. Enoch is a man who uh, walked with God, uh, and then God took him out. And he goes out right before the next guy in verse 7 comes on the scene, which is Noah. Now, Here's what you have. Noah is a picture of the nation of Israel. You are told that Noah and the time that he spends in the ark uh, during the flood is some way connected with the time that uh, God is going to put Israel through the tribulation period. You're told that in the Old Testament. And it's a thing where, you know, you want to, you know, you want to, you want to see these things. So you have a man by the name of Enoch, and it says, uh, by faith, en- uh, Enoch was translated that he should not see death. He's raptured out. He's taken out, just like you and I are going to be. That he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. And then it says in verse 6, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. Now, you know, if Enoch is a type of the church, and he is, and here again, 
you get guys that try to teach you today that there's no rapture or the churches are going to be raptured out. Man, you've got scores and scores of places like this in the Bible that shows you through the process of typology that here's a man who's a picture of the church. He gets taken out before a man who's a type of Israel goes through the judgment of God, Israel in the tribulation through Noah. Uh, and, uh, and then at the end when Noah comes out, there's a rainbow in the sky. There's only two times in the Bible you find a rainbow, once when God is done with Noah in that judgment and once when God is done with the judgment of the Jews in the tribulation period. So you got to be brain dead to uh, to not see these things and and uh, and just arrogantly stupid, I guess is the, is the way. So you see here that the first thing we see that this whole concept of us pleasing God all comes down to your aspect of faith, and there's four aspects to your faith. And I'm not talking here, you'll please God just by trusting God in everything that you do. Much more to it than that. That is the, that is the kindergarten Bible entry level of faith. These four men that we're going to look at in the first part of the chapter give us the four absolutes of a life of faith. And you got to, we now have been told that without this, we don't please him. We live in a Christianity today, uh, and, and you, I know I show it to you every week. You're going to see it again tomorrow. Uh, I show it to you every week that we are so far from where, you know, God intended the church to be. But we have been, we have been put to sleep, and we have believed everything that's been told us, and was got out of the Bible, took the Bible from us. So now we're in a, we're in a, we're in a world that has no clue of what God, who God really is, Colossians chapter 1 and 2, what God really does, or our relationship with him. And this is absolutely the downfall today. And, you know, it's a thing where you probably get tired of hearing it. I, I, I don't ever get tired of preaching it, but, I, you, you know, I can understand how somebody would say, well, why don't you get off it? You know what? I can't get off it because you're coming against the judgment seat of Christ where you're going to have to get off it. And it's a thing where we are so far out. Modern-day preachers that are Bible-believing preachers, anyhow, are just like the Old Testament prophets before Israel went into captivity. They weren't popular either. Their messages certainly weren't because they were coming to a religious system that had propped itself up that was right where God wanted it to be when, in essence, they were nowhere around where God wanted them to be. And it's a disaster. And that's where we're at today. And, uh, you know, we, we, we talk the talk, but we have no clue of how we apply that into our life. Pleasing God. You know, what does it take to please God? And, of course, we've studied it before. There are seven things that you have to know to please God. And they all are built around faith. And it's a thing where, you know, this is Enoch. Enoch walked with God. And, you know, and when you study that story there... It, it, it gives the indication that Enoch didn't start out walking with God. It, 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 it's, his walk with God looks like it's built around the birth of Methuselah, who was his son. And Methuselah, of course, is the oldest man in the Bible. And it says that in Enoch walked with God after he begot Methuselah 300 years. Now, that seems to indicate that... He, Methuselah was key in his life. Now, 
That will be true of all of us. If you're here today or you're listening to this and you're doing something for God in a New Testament local church and you're involved in ministry and you're, you know, doing everything that you can do in the time and age that we're in up against the day that we're up against, the day of Jesus Christ, the rapture of the church, I want to tell you, there was a point in your life where all that came into focus. Now, Methuselah means, the name means, when he uh, is gone, judgment will come. And I don't want to get into the Genesis. We've done it before, so uh, that's not my point today. I want to move through these guys, so I'll just tell the story about them. We've been through it before. Uh, it, when you put up the, 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 the men around Enoch running up to Noah, and you put Lamech in there, Methuselah, and you get all these guys lined up and you get their years, you're going to find out that the flood came. The flood came on the exact day that Methuselah died. So it's almost like Enoch didn't walk with God, and then God gave him Methuselah, and then God said to Enoch, Name him Methuselah, and I want to tell you something about that boy, Enoch, that you better get your act together. My judgment is coming, and I'm going to build it around Methuselah, so his name needs to mean when he is gone, judgment shall come, and the exact day that boy dies, my judgment's going to fall on this earth, and that's why it was a turning point in his life. Now, what needs to be the turning point in your life and my life? Salvation. Obviously, that's the beginning of it, but that's not the real turning point. I mean, that's when you get saved and you start your journey with God, but that's not the real turning point. The real turning point for you and for me will be the same turning point that it was for Enoch when you realize that there's a day coming when God's judgment's going to fall. Tomorrow, I'm just going to give you a little preview, your blessing for coming today. Uh, we're going to deal with a number of things, but we're going to go back and look at the phrase that we haven't looked at yet. We're going to actually going to move on in four or five more verses, but then we're going to fall back on a phrase that is in the first 11 verses that we looked at, and that is where Jesus says, mine hour has not yet come. And I'm going to take that tomorrow, and, you know, and so, you know, you're the cream of the crop here as far as I'm concerned. Uh, you're where, and if you look around you at all the people that we have in the, you know, uh, that are here this morning, I, I look at every one of you as the cream of the crop. You're here. Most of you on some level, you're doing something and you're getting something accomplished and done and praise the Lord for that. But I'm going to show you tomorrow how that everything that Jesus did in his public ministry was up against that hour. And that hour is his crucifixion. You can actually go through, and you'll hear this again tomorrow, so enjoy it. You'll actually go through uh, his life on earthly ministry and watch him orchestrating all the events around that hour. And that hour is the, is the hour of his death. And when he says, mine hour is not yet come, he's talking about his death on the cross. At the same time, we know that Jesus came to do the work of his Father. 
And he said, uh, I'm here to do the work of my father. I'm, I, you know, I'm about my father's business. That work is the finished work that he does on the cross. This is why he says on the cross, it is finished. What? His life? No, no. The work. And when we talk about Christ's death on the cross, we call it the finished work of Christ. His work was all about an hour. And in that hour, he did his work. Now, when we went through the third day system, I showed you three or four ways that you determined the times and the season, didn't I? And one of them in Matthew chapter 20 was an hour system. It starts at 6 o'clock in the morning and goes at 6 o'clock at even, 12-hour day. I'm going to take that tomorrow and show you the formula of, of, of doing what he's doing there and showing you that that's a picture of the church age. And that 12-hour day is broken down into the third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour, and the eleventh hour. Every Christian in the church age that was born within that 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. time frame was born in an hour on that scale. And every Christian is up against knowing when Christ is coming back approximately where you were born and the question is, were you in your hour doing the work of God as Christ was? You see, he did the work of God on the cross in his hour. We do the work of God after the cross in our hour. And just as he had an hour to do the work of God, so do we. And God's people are oblivious to that concept. They are living their lives like it's going to go on forever. When the pandemic comes or some other little crisis comes into their life, they forget. They have no focus on that hour. In three and a half years, Christ never lost sight of the work that God called him to do and the hour that he was going to do it. And in 2,000 years, when you break that formula down and you see how each year figures how many, how many, each hour of that day figures how many years, you find out that you and I went in in the last, last, last moments of the last hour. And we here today, this church, you and me, we stand in our hour to do the work. And that's what Enoch's a picture of. Enoch it says we're translated. And we, we talked about that he should not see death. And I used this a couple, I don't know, I don't know, a couple months ago. I don't remember if it was on Sunday morning or Thursday night about the word translator translation. You see, the Bible uses words differently than we use them. And when we think of the word translation, we think of one language from another. And that's the standard mindset that gets people messed up in the Bible because they don't use the Bible for definitions. In the Bible, the word translation or translate is never about one language to another, but one, one place to another. Enoch was translated that he should not see death. It was God. God took him. He went from one place and was translated to another place. 
And that's the key to understanding your Bible and the King James Bible and the issue that goes along with that. It wasn't a translation from one language to another, though it was. But in God's mind, it was a translation from one place to the other. The Word became flesh. The Word was up in heaven in the person of Jesus Christ, and God translated it down to here. And he was on this earth as God's translation of truth. And then God took him back to heaven and then sent it back, translated again to the Holy Spirit of God in you. And just like Enoch, there's coming a day where you and I are going to be translated out again. See? All around that one little word. And Enoch is a picture of, 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 of walking with God for 300 years. I, you know, I, I, can't even, I, I can't even imagine that. What he must have known about God, what he must have, what he must have, you know, understood about God. I mean, you know, I'm coming up on 50 years of it. And, you know, and I've tried to apply myself. I, I haven't always, and I've, you know, but I mean, to the best of my ability, I've, I've, I've tried to learn everything I could, and I've still got plenty to learn. That's nothing compared to 300 years. He had 250 more years on me. And you know what? And it looks like during the time that God didn't have a lot of other people he was working with because nobody really cared. I mean, he, you talk about having God's undivided attention. I mean, and what he must have learned from God. And it's a thing where God came down and took him out. And uh, he stands for us as one of the great models of faith. You know, that, uh, and without faith, it's impossible to please him. You see, faith is not about you just stepping out blindly, crossing your fingers and crossing your heart and hope to die and stepping out there and say, I hope God comes through. No, it's not. It's more than that. Faith is the substance of the evidence not seen. It's the, thing, it's the evidence of the thing. Faith is the evidence of something you can't see. Well, how can it be evidence if you can't see it? Because the evidence is not what you can't see. It's what he's done in the past for you. But you've got to build a relationship with God to do that. Very frankly, in modern-day Christianity, most of our struggles are self-inflicted. It, they really are. My life, your life, they're self-inflicted. You know, you're going to learn, if you ever get into the ministry, that, you know, the more you take a stand for the Word of God, and you know what, and this is why some of you, you know, I try to take you through levels, you know, I'm looking at this Rise and Shine ministry as a really opportunity for so many of you ladies that are right there to step into that next threshold. And I, I never, you know, you never throw green troops into combat. You give them a chance to settle in. You give them a chance to grow. You've got to step them into it. You can't just throw them out there uh, and let them get gobbled up. You've got to protect them. You've got to, but I am telling you, Everything that you're getting here to grow, if you do it, if you grow, if you go through the process, if you allow this church to, to, for you to be rooted, to be built up, and then to be established, it's only going to bring you to a point where the more you get out there to do for God, the more, the more problems you're going to have. 
the more people are going to hate you. The more people who don't want to do what's right are going to blame you for their problems. You ever notice in our own, our own world today, just in the unsaved world, it's everybody, everybody blames everything on everybody else. You know why that is? Because that's the easiest thing to do. We live in a world that doesn't have any accountability, nor does it want any responsibility. And in a world like that, whether it's the saved Christian world or the political world or just the world in general where you work, it's always easier to blame what mistakes that we've made on somebody else. Therefore, we never have to learn from them or be accountable to them. And that's the world that we're in today. And that's why they hate the Bible. That's why they'll hate your preaching and your teaching. That's why when you start to work with people, everything is great and wonderful and fine till the Bible starts to bore little holes in their cells and, and start to deflate some things and make them look at some things. And then once they do that, they don't want to go any farther. And, and, you know, and many of you get disheartened about that and you look at that and you say, well, you know, that's just, um, that's just, you know, that's just a terrible thing. No, no, no. That is the way it is. And the farther we get away from the Bible, the more it's going to be that way. You're going to find people who simply don't want to do what's right. They don't do what's right with their families. I said it yesterday, there's no, last week, there's no miracles of God in their life. There's no power of God in their life. They're not changing anybody's life with their life. And you are, but you're the problem. You just got to understand that that's just, that's just the, the way the wind blows today. And that's why you got to endure a hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. You got to get toughened up a little bit. Because it's going to happen. This is why I tell you that the number one rule of dealing with people, don't take it personal. If you've done what you needed to do and you laid the Bible out and you were right on the money with it and you uh, did what you were supposed to do, then you're, you're good. You can't make somebody do right that doesn't want to do right. And uh, all you can do is you keep on doing right. And it'll come. You'll get clobbered. You know, it, it, but it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't change anything. It's just the way that it is. And, you know, and you're going to see that a life of faith like Enoch, he, he, he goes through those things. He lived in a world that was much, much worse than ours. And you're coming up here on Noah, and Noah, you know, man, Noah's world was absolutely terrible bad. And yet you see that, uh, that Enoch was in the, in the beginning of that. And yet, you'll, you'll, you'll notice that if you go over to uh, Jude chapter 14, uh, not Jude, Jude chapter 1 verse 14, you don't have to go there. I'll, I'm just telling you the story. You can write it down and pick it up later. You're going to find, you get a little insight to his, that he was a preacher. <coughs> and this is before Noah. You know what he's preaching? He's preaching God's judgment at the, as it turns out for us, the second coming of Christ. But in his day, it was God's judgment that was going to come with Noah. He's preaching that. And he's preaching that in a world that did not want anything to do with God. And uh, I heard a guy preach a message on this years and years and years ago. And it was a little play on words and it was a great message. And he said, you know, when, when the United States sends a man up in outer space, they call him an astronaut. When, go, when Russia sends a man up in space, they call him a cosmonaut. But when God takes a man off this earth and takes him up there, he calls him a was-not. Enoch walked with God and was not. And he said, I want to be a was-not. 
I'd better be a was not than a has been. And it was a great little message on a play of word, but that's so true. And then he went into the thing that what was Enoch was not. He was not conformed to this world. He was not part of the system. He was not uh, walking with the world. Oh, he laid it out on a concept of Enoch was not what he was not. And you see, those kind of things are, are great stuff to lay out because it's so true. And he's a picture of your life and my life right now as a Christian, right before our next guy shows up that brings us up through the tribulation period, Noah. And it's showing you and me that right now we're up against our hour, just as he was. There was something in his life that changed from him just being Enoch that for the next 300 years after those, I think it was 65 years, after the next 300 years, he walked with God. And it has to do with Methuselah. And Methuselah has to do with his understanding of the coming day when God's judgment was going to fall. Look, look, kids, if you don't get a perspective in your Christian life, you're going to be like everybody else out there. If you don't allow that perspective to give you an understanding of your position, where you're at in this world, up against that day, then you're going to be like everybody else. And if you don't get the perspective and get the position and allow those two things to give you your purpose, in all of my years, in all the churches that I've associated with and dealt with. Everybody who has got a nose bent out of joint and left the church, they lack those three things. They had no perspective or they wouldn't let some little problem kick them out of the work of God. They had no position. They didn't see anything the way they were at and they certainly didn't have any purpose. And so those three things, when you don't have them, you're, you're on borrowed time. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not next week, but at some point, you're out. It's like the pandemic that we have. When we didn't have a pandemic, you know, we had 230, 240, 250 people. Now, you know, we have about 170 on Sunday and probably another 40 watching in out there who are legitimate, you know, and can't, you know, can't uh, be here. But it's a fact where, you know, suddenly everybody gets more concerned that, that don't have the medical issues that ought to be here. They ought to be part of it, but they don't. And this is not a criticism. It's just it's life in the legacy and church period. And yet, <clears throat> they go to work on Monday. I know a lot of them are working at home. But when they tell you to go back to work, you're going to go. You're going to go back to work. You know why you're going to go back to work? Because you go back to work to get paid. You've got an investment at work. You've got to go. You know why you won't come to church on Sunday? You've got no investment here. If you don't show up on Sunday, nobody's going to say, well, boy, so-and-so's not here. We were going to study the Bible today. No, no. If you're going to teach somebody the Bible, I guarantee you, you're going to be here. Why? You've got an investment. Enoch had an investment. Enoch understood where he was and he walked for 300 years after he had a son that clearly God used to show him, you better get your act together and you better get a perspective, you better get a position and you better get a purpose. 
And then the Bible says one day God came down and took him out. And one day God's going to come down and take us out. And the thing we all got to ask ourselves today, right now, in this very moment, in this hour, and I'm going to lay it out for you tomorrow. You just got a little taste of it. You know, it's a thing where uh, the thing that is, is that we are up against is that same hour. And it has to be what drives us. And it has to be that we realize that what God, no matter how bad it is. I had a guy tell me, this was a couple of, four or five months ago, you know, he said, well, he says, I'm not just coming to, and he wasn't even a member of our church. He said, yeah, I haven't been to church now in seven or eight months. And he said, I, you know, I just, uh, I'm not going while the coronavirus is here. And I said, well, I said, um, I said, do you, have you ever stopped and looked at the, what's happening? Like it's God's hand of judgment, you know? And it's just like, you know, he, and I gave him the 88 times, you know, through the Bible that God brought sickness or disease to somebody's world. Uh, and he, you know, he didn't really deal with that. He said, and I said, well, do you not trust the principles and the promises of God uh, that you can still minister? First of all, he hadn't ministered to anybody, but, you know, this is where I'm going. And uh, he, he just he didn't have an answer. And he said, and then his question was this. He says, well, he says, I just can't afford to get sick and lose my job. And I said, you know, I know I read this someplace. My God to supply all of your needs according to riches and glory by Christ Jesus. God, does, God doesn't know you need your job. Is that just something that maybe you better let God in on that? My point is this. Those kind of people, they have an alibi to get out of every promise found in the Bible. You know why? Because they got no investment in it. To them, this is a nothing to do with God. It's just a terrible time we're all going through. Let's all hide under a rock someplace till it passes. First of all, there aren't any rocks. Second of all, it ain't going to pass. Uh, you're in it, and you might as well decide that you're going to stay in it and do what you got to do, follow the rules best you can. I mean, uh, it changes every day. A couple of weeks ago, you know, when we started this, you know, when they, when they, when they come out with the deal, um, they said everybody has to wear a mask. So you're all wearing masks. You know what they said two weeks ago? Now you got to wear two masks. Two masks are better than one. And so now, you know, the Democrats, when they get this thing moving, they're going to want everybody to wear two masks. And, uh, you know, it's just, that's just where it goes. You know, unless you come back to the Bible and get some kind of foundation that you can base everything off of, you're going to be kicked six ways from Sunday on this thing. So, you know, Enoch is an incredible picture of faith and pleasing God. And I want to give you the idea that you don't please God unless you have faith. And faith isn't just, well, I'm going to hope God comes through tomorrow. That's not the faith of the Bible. The faith of the Bible is through your relationship with him. You've seen God come through yesterday, so you know he's going to come through today, and most certainly he's going to come through tomorrow. And faith is you don't have to have all the answers to move forward because you don't look at the evidence. You look at the evidence not seen, and that's if he took care of you last year, pretty safe bet he's going to take care of you this year. See, that's faith. And Enoch, his whole life changed around one boy named Methuselah that had to do with God's coming judgment.
And I'm telling you, <clears throat> God's people's lives need to change when they see they're up against that hour and what's coming. And we don't want to get, I, I, don't, I can't speak for anybody. I just speak for myself and me as pastor of this church. Whether you get in or you get out, it's up to you. It's okay. But I am not going to steer this church away from that day. I'm going to head a course right into the sunset. And we'll just take it. And we'll go whatever we got to do. And we got to adjust. We got to do this. We got to do that. Then that's what we'll do. But we are not stopping. And I said it. You know, we had the thing where everybody else is shutting down. Guy, I haven't been to church in seven months. And my church is not having services. And we're not doing this. And here we are. God's opening up the doors for a ministry to women that, you know, that's probably going to open up even more and even go even farther. Just take it one step at a time. God's still in the business, folks, even though you closed up shop. He's still in business. And, you know, and that's, and, and that's what we do. So you got, you got um, Abel here, and you got Enoch here. And then we got verse 7, our third guy, by faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. Wow. Uh, I don't even know how to even begin in this verse. First of all, by faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet. What does that mean? God came down and told Noah to build a 300-foot aircraft carrier in his backyard. And he told God, God told him that the reason why you're going to do that is because I'm going to bring rain upon the earth and I'm going to flood the earth out. So when it says there the things have not seen as yet, it hadn't rained yet. So Noah is given the task, of, and he's a preacher too. You find that in the Bible. He's preaching it too. He's preaching God's coming judgment. And yet he's out there doing what he's doing, preaching what he's preaching, and about something that, Nobody has a clue and understands what he's talking about. You know, that is such a picture of where we're at today. You try to talk to somebody about heaven and hell and look at the blank stare you get in their face. Now, there was a time when it permeated this world that people understood that concept, those two concepts, not today. There's no understanding of the aspect of heaven and hell today, none whatsoever. And it's a thing where God's people are completely um, at a loss at this thing. And it's, you know, Noah being warned of God of things not seen as yet. And then the next phrase is he moved with fear. Now, he wasn't afraid of God as God was going to do something to him. He a fear of God because he knows that God is going to exact judgment on a world and he doesn't want to get caught up in that. So you know what he does? He prepared an ark. That ark is what saved him. And yet I want you to see this. That ark's a type of Christ, by the way. And uh, you know, it, uh, it, had a, it, it had a three levels and uh, Christ is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Uh, it, was, uh, it was made of uh, shittim wood, which is picture of Christ's humanity. Uh, it had a door in the side where people went in and came out. Christ got a hole in his side where we went in. And uh, so it's a beautiful picture of that for, for me and you. 
But the thing that I want you to see here is that he prepared an ark to the saving of his household. Now, if Jesus Christ doesn't come and we are left to go through this thing because God's going to play it out a little longer for whatever his purpose is, and that's okay with me. You know, I thought for sure that I would go in a rapture. I'm starting to have my doubts about it at this point in time. Am, am I going to go in a hospital bed like everybody else? But it's a thing where uh, there may come a time for you as a Christian, you young couples especially, as this world continues to go. And uh, uh, I, I, I have never seen in just two, what, two weeks' time now in America? I, I never thought it was possible. I, I didn't think that, you know, America in 2020 could change so quickly with the coronavirus, but it took seven, eight, nine months for us to all get locked down and masked up. I would never believe that this country could turn on a dime like it has in the last, what, not even two weeks? With the executive orders that are coming out that it changes everything about this country? And we got, we're talking about the first 100 days. We're not, even in, we're not even in 14 days yet. There's been 28 of them that has destroyed everything that you want, could ever want. You ain't seen that. We don't, you know, somebody had to write a book, The Destruction of America in 100 Days or Less, because that's where we're going. And uh, there's nothing going to stop it. Now, based on last week's message, can you give thanks for that? I can. I don't care. You know, I mean, uh, that's just, it, it is, see, I have perspective. I have position. And I have purpose. I know that God took care of me for, for 70 years of my life, and he's going to take care of me for whatever time is left. The government doesn't enter into it. Biden doesn't enter into it. Trump doesn't enter into it. God enters into it. His promises. And it's a thing where, you know, when you see things like that coming our way, I'm going to tell you something. You have no clue. Right now, you don't even know most of it, don't know, and it doesn't really directly affect you. Just let it shake down a little bit. Just let it shake down a little bit. Let's let it come to the place where they're already clamping down on the First Amendment of free speech. They're already marketing anybody that doesn't agree with them is going to be a racist. It's all set in motion. They're going to sweep across this country and they're going to sweep up everybody who has any biblical common sense or any normal value system of life. And it's, uh, it, it's, you, you, it, they're going to create, they're going to create a racist system in his church, and you're going to be labeled as a terrorist, domestic terrorist. Why? Because you preach the truth and the world doesn't want the truth. You better get set for it. I, you know, if some of you thought I was just being theat theatric last week, or the week before last, whatever, I, was two, I guess it was two times ago on Sunday, I said, you better choose if you want to be part of this church or not. You don't understand the depth of that statement, pal. I mean, uh, what are you going to do when they say you can't work here anymore if you still go to that church? See, right now, you got a little test case. It's called coronavirus. 
and you can't even pass that test. What are you going to do when they come down and say, if you read your Bible and you believe this, or you go to a Baptist church or a Bible-believing church that preaches contrary to this, you can't work here anymore. What are you going to do with that? Well, maybe you will. It'll be me and you, buddy. Your wife didn't say a thing. Coffee, 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 coffee. It's one of those things where, hey, that's where it's going. And I know you scare people when you talk this way, but I'm just telling you, hey, this is it. Wake up. This is the world we live in. You have the privilege of being persecuted for that book that you can stand up there at the judgment seat of Christ, put your arms around the Walt Indian and the Anabaptist and say, we got it, didn't we, guys? Yeah. You know what? Courage. God's people today are the biggest cowards on this planet. And their cowardness is only going to be manifested more as the iron grip grips Christianity. Back in Jesus' day when the Roman Empire ruled the world, you couldn't meet in churches like this. If you did, you had fear at night that the Roman centurions were going to break down your door and haul you off and torture you and, and uh, never see your family again. And they survived. In fact, they flourished. And, of course, we're right where we're at today. Roman centurions are just around the corner. And uh, it's a thing where it's, uh, it's you know, you, you better get to the point where you, <laughs> you decide where you're going to stand. And, uh, you know, Noah moved with fear. There's probably coming a time if the Lord tarries his coming that the only people you'll ever be able to win to Christ is your own family. I see that coming. It's hard to win people to Christ now. I, I haven't met a sinner in 20 years. Everybody's got their own brand of Christianity and their own relationship with God. Had nothing to do with the Bible. So I would say that there's coming a time if Jesus doesn't come that the only people that you're going to be able to win to Christ in a world that is Christless is your family. And most of God's people don't have very good practice at even doing that. So you can see the mess we're in. You need to build an ark for your family. You need to build an ark for your family that when the judgments of this earth come, whether it be coronavirus, pan, any other pandemic, coronavirus 1, son of coronavirus 2, or whatever phase it gets through, whatever comes from China, South Africa, or Mars. When the government goes upside down and uh, your kids have to go to school now, and they're in there with, uh, with, uh, with all of the uh, kids that they're told now when they're five years old that don't decide just yet if you're a boy or you're a girl. Don't let somebody tell you what your gender is as you grow up and you decide what you are. I'm a boy or I'm a girl. I'm a boy, but I'm a girl, or I'm a girl, or I'm a boy. Don't you choose your gender. And then the next thing you do is join the army because now they're putting all the gender people and all the lesbians back in the army. Be all you can be. And uh, it's, it's, it's where you're at. It's where it's going. And you have to protect your family from that. 
You do that by building an ark. You do that by move with fear. Not fear of what's going to happen to me, but fear what God's going to do to this earth. And I got to put a protection around my family that we stay in the ark when God's judgment's fallen. And you know what? You'll pay the price for that. You'll pay the price for that just like Noah did when people in his neighborhood came over and said, what in the world are you building? Well, I'm building a big boat. I can see that, Noah. Going down to the lake, are you? With a 400-foot cabin cruiser? Three levels? He says, well, God told me that it's going to rain and he's going to wipe out the planet. What? What are you talking about? God is a God of love, brother. Why? <coughs> as long as you love your neighbor as yourself and you do unto others before they do it to you, you're going to be okay. <laughs> I don't think I got that last part right. <laughs> what are you doing, Noah? Well, God told me. God told you? Noah, you've been hanging out at the vine tree down there. I know you got a little vineyard down there. You've been hanging out down there, uh, you know. I mean, I know a little wine for your stomach's sake, and often infirmities is okay, but uh, Noah? And Noah said, no, God told me. He came down and told me, build an ark. He's going to judge this earth, and he's going to drown it out. And he told me to build an ark to save my family. And that's what I'm doing. And they laughed at him. They made fun of him. You think he wasn't on CNN? You think he didn't make it an NBSC or ABCD or whatever the case may be? You think the liberals didn't tear him up, make fun of him? Here's a crackpot fanatic that's building a 400-foot boat in his backyard. <coughs> and uh, because he says God, who we all know is a God of love, is going to come down and wipe it out? And he's building an ark to save his family. You see, and you're going to suffer the same consequences when you work to build an ark to save your family because people are going to say, ask you why, and you're going to tell them because God's judgment, because of this world, because of what we're going through. I'm not building an ark to keep my kids from getting coronavirus. I'm building an ark that God will use us through the coronavirus. It's the difference of perspective, position, and purpose. And boy, Noah paid the price for it. And uh, so will you, if you do it. Of course, I say that knowing full well that most of God's people have nothing to worry about. You're not going to do it. You're not interested in building an ark for your family. You're interested in blaming everybody else because your boy or your girl is out in the world and instead of you taking responsibility for it. How many have seen the movie Gladiator? How many? Greatest movie you almost ever saw. I watch it every time it's on television right up to one point. Then I don't watch it anymore. There's one line in there that every person ought to get down. 
And I'll just sit there waiting for that moment. And then when it's over, back to world at war. The tears in the sun. You know what the line is? It's in the early part of the movie, so you got plenty of time to watch something else afterwards. It's when Marcus Aridicus, who's no longer with us, it's when Marcus Aridicus goes into Caesar, and Caesar tells him, you're going to take my kingdom, and I want you to restore Rome. And he says, your son, who is the rightful heir to the throne, is not going to like that. He says, he'll be okay with it. He'll be okay. So, he goes out. He's, he's struggling because he knows it's not going to be okay. Because this boy, this his, what was his name? Thomas. What? Hominus. Who? Hominus. What was it? Hominus. This boy, anyway. <laughs> he comes in to see his dad. And his dad tells him that Marcus Aridicus is going to take the throne and run Rome. And the kid just loses it. And he says, he starts listing all the qualities that he knows that his father looks for in a, in a man. And he says, Father, I know I don't have those qualities. But I have other good qualities. And he starts listing them, you know. He can crochet. You know. <laughs> he cooks great ribs. <laughs> all those things. <laughs> and he begins to cry. And he begins to cry. And the old man is moved. He doesn't know the boy's going to kill him here in just a few minutes, but he's really moved by it. And here comes the line. Oh, I love this line. It's so true. He takes him and he says, my son, your failure as my son is nothing more than my failure as your father. Shut the movie off right there, folks. No use going any farther. That is the classic line of truth that you're ever going to get. And most of God's people, they're not going to prepare an ark for the Savior of their household. Their kid's out there doing drugs. He's out there drinking. He's out there running this. He's doing that. He's doing this. He's living with somebody. He's out running around. She's out running around. They're doing everything on the planet. And uh, you know what? It's your fault or somebody's fault. They, I, I just, I think we got to put them in the bookstore, movie Gladiator. <laughs> Find out where when you start it, you get to the little number on your counter, you know, and say, underline this particular 15 minutes and 27 seconds when he says that. No truer words were ever taken. Your failure as my son is nothing more than my failure as your father. Whew. Man. So, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved to the saving of his house by the witch. Oh, here it comes, by the witch. Hmm. Let's see here. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, semicolon, by the witch. By the witch. 
he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. By the which, building an ark for his family. You do that, you're going to pay a price. You're going to pay a price when your kids are right with God and love God and work with you in ministry by your side and you got other families out there that the kids wouldn't give a flying flip about anything with God and the parents look at you and your kids serving God with you and have a problem with you and condemn you and get on you, talk about you and hate you to compensate. Their ark's got no bottom in it. I'm telling you. You want to condemn the world, just do what's right with your family. Because parents lose their kids. Saved, lost. They lose their kids. And when they see somebody, you, who raise your kids, train your kids, bring them up, and they're with you in ministry by your side, they can't handle that. You know why? It's a witness against them, and it condemns them. But here again, they never saw the movie. They never got that line, your failure as my son or my daughter is my failure as your father and mother. Not to blame it on somebody else. It's the way it always works. Has worked that way, always will work that way. I mean, it all goes back to Genesis when Adam and Eve got messed up and fell and God brought over there and Adam said to Adam, what'd you do? And you know what, you know what Adam said to God? The wife you gave me. See, God's fault. That's the first time in the Bible when everybody's been blaming everybody else except taking responsibility themselves for the next four, five, six thousand years. Second verse, same as the first, never changes. Human nature, wow. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark, and the saving of his house by the witch, the building of the ark and the saving of his family, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. I mean, these guys are incredible. Then the next guy, the fourth one. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed and went out not knowing whether he went. By faith he subjourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker was God. We'll include his wife in this one too. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed uh, and was delivered of a child when she was past age. She's 90 years old when she has this baby, by the way. He's 99. Um, and she judged him faithful to, he had problems. Now, the first glaring thing here that we have here is none of this is true. <laughs> so we got to deal with that. God's got Alzheimer's here. He has forgotten the real story. He's got him confused and her confused with somebody else. Uh, because when it says here, uh, by Abraham, by faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive an inheritance, obeyed and went out, not knowing whether he went. That's simply not true. When you go back and study the account, God told him to take out nobody with him and just head out. And you know what? He took Lot. Now, we all know that story. 
I just put it into your life and my life. God tells us to do something and we think we know just a little bit better, so we bring the lot of our life with us. And Lot was a source of issues in his life all the rest of his life. It goes to show you one bad choice can haunt you for the rest of your life. And uh, it's a thing where, um, you know, he, uh, <laughs> he says, uh, he obeyed. No, he didn't. He didn't obey at all. Now, a little bit later on when he's over there with one of those kings and they get looking at his wife and think she's pretty hot. And uh, he says, is this your wife or your sister? He's scared to death that if he says, well, my wife, he's going <coughs> to wake up with his throat cut in the morning. So he says, no, she's my sister. That wasn't true. Well, she was his half-sister, but that wasn't true. He didn't trust God. He didn't obey God. He, didn't, he started out failing in every test that God gave him. And Sarah? And through, her, and through faith also, Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed. She did not. She laughed at him. In fact, the boy that she has, what's his name? Isaac. Who gave him that name? God did. Why? Because Isaac means laughter. She says, I didn't laugh, just like you say. I say, well, I didn't do that. God says, yeah, but you did laugh. See? God's always keeping a record. Now, what are you going to do with that? I'll tell you what you do with it. You put that into your life and my life. God saw something in them that they couldn't see in themselves. And God will see things in you that you don't see in yourself. So God puts up with our stupid stuff at the beginning to get the good stuff at the end. And God is not the God who always bringing things up against you. Uh, I know this is all after, and I've heard it preached before, well, this is after the cross, so it's all under the blood, so he doesn't say anything. Hey, I get that. I like that. I think that's probably good. But I'll tell you something else that's a little deeper. Sometimes God will see things in you that you don't see in yourself. And God knows that you're going to do what's right, but he also knows you've got some barnacles on your hull. And so he lets you scrape them off and he lets you put some things and he never holds it against you because he sees the finished product. And the quicker you learn that, the better off you're going to be in life. And the more you're going to love him. He said a long time ago for Abraham, he says, I know him. I know what he'll do. Somebody said, yeah, but he didn't listen here. He didn't. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. The end result with God is always better than the beginning. And God was patient. See, that's our problem. We're not patient. Most pastors aren't patient with the people. I know people struggle. I know people do dumb things. I can tell pretty quickly if a guy is worth working with or a girl's worth working with or they're not. It doesn't take much after all the years I've been in this business. I mean, some of you guys can walk on a lot, start a car, look under the hood and say, don't buy this. You see oil leaking where I can't see it. You see something wrong when it started. You see it grinding someplace. And I couldn't see those things. I'd walk in there and say, this is a good deal. You say, don't buy it. Don't buy it. I have people come in this church. I lift the hood, look at your engine, turn the key a little bit, drive you around the parking lot and say, don't buy it. Don't buy it. Why are you all looking so serious? I'm not talking about you guys. You're here. I know what's under your hood. You got a 427 with headers on it, man. You're ready to go. I get it. But it's a thing where I'm just telling you. 
Um, God looks at you and me and God sees us and knows that your heart and knows what you'll do. So he puts up with those things. It gives you a chance. Sometimes I think God gives us the chance to screw up just to see what we'll do if we'll do what's right with it. And I think that uh, that was with Abraham and Sarah. We'll talk about them tomorrow, tomorrow. But what a great, great story that is. And it says, by faith he sojourned in the land of promise as a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob and heirs with him in the same promise. That's true. And that sets up a great picture for you and for me. <coughs> We're in a strange land. You're in a tent. What are you doing in a permanent dwelling? I don't mean your home. I mean in your spiritual relationship with God. What are you doing getting your roots down in the world? A tent is a temporary thing. It moves from place to place to place. Notice he wasn't satisfied even though he was in the promised land. He wasn't satisfied and he never built any real buildings. He just lived in tents. I wonder why. Oh, 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 I know. Verse 10. For he looked for a city which hath foundations whose builder and maker is God. He's looking for a city. He's looking for God's city. Now, I, I say this all the time, you know, and this is so true. You hear today and People say it all the time. It's the standard thing you say today that, uh, you know, in the Old Testament, they were looking forward to the cross. In the Old Testament, they were looking back to the cross, us. And we do. We look back to the cross. But if you get the idea that in the Old Testament, they were looking for the cross, you've got to do something with that verse right there because it says he looked for, a, he looked for the cross. He wasn't looking for the cross. He's looking for a city. You know what that city is? It's found in Ezekiel chapter 40 through chapter 48. That's the millennial city. He's not looking for a savior on the cross. He's looking for a city whose builder and foundation and maker is God. That won't be San Francisco. It won't be Kansas City. It won't be any city you find on this planet. And it certainly isn't the cross for the Old Testament. Now, I'm going to show you a key verse in your Bible that will, it, it won't do any good with these guys because they're idiots but it'll do good for you. Now, you come back to Luke chapter 2 with me for a moment, and I know I haven't taken you a lot of places today, but I want to take you to this one. You come back to Luke chapter 2. I'm going to show you something here. This idea that they're looking forward to the cross is about as bogus as, uh, you know, a note from Martin Luther King to Santa Claus in 4004 B.C. Now, come back here to Luke chapter 2. Pick it up in verse um, 36. Now, you want to see what they're doing back here? Abraham's all the way back there, way back there. Here's when Christ shows up. And he's going to go to the cross. Let's see if they're looking for the cross. 36. And there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of uh, Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher, she was of a great age and had lived with a husband seven years uh, from her virginity. And she was a widow of about fourscore and four years, which departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And she coming in that instant gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spake of him 
to all them that look for redemption in Jerusalem. Look at that. Not one thing about the cross, not one thing about her own personal salvation, not one thing I'm looking for the Savior to come and die so I can get saved. She and all of them, read it, to all them that look for the redemption in Jerusalem. Looking forward to the cross. Well, you're as goofy as a bat trying to back in backward. The bigger the belfry, the more room for the bats. He wasn't looking for a, he wasn't looking for the cross. He's looking for a city. And at the first coming of Christ, they're looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. But I know, don't confuse your theology with a lot of facts. For he looked for a city whose foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child, as Isaac, when she was past age. She's 90 years old, and he's 99 when he has that boy, uh, who, uh, uh, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Well, uh, she didn't judge him faithful who had promised, but she should have. And God saw past her inability to trust him, and uh, the principle is still true. Uh, everybody saw a, an old couple that was ready for John Knox Village, and God saw the nation of Israel. We're going to talk about this tomorrow when we get into the next part of the verse. But since we're here today, you're here today, and you've been good kids and coming out today and putting up with all this stuff, I'll give you a little bit of, little extra on it so you've got to jump on everybody tomorrow. Now, faith. Four areas in your life based on these four people that you have to have working in your life if you're going to have real faith. It's just that simple. You don't have it, you don't have faith. You may talk about it faith in the Laodicean concept or the world concept or your own mumbo-jumbo concept of the word faith. We've now went to Hebrews chapter 11, the great chapter on faith, to find faith in the first three verses. And now I've given you four crucial examples of faith in the lives of four people, and I'm going to summarize it all down for you and each person that you can take home with you today. First of all, by faith, Abel. And the first aspect for you based on Abel and what he did is simply this. Don't be afraid to give God the very best you have. Don't be afraid to give God the very best you have. He made a more excellent sacrifice. Make sure in your Christian life, you do too. Give the God the very best that you can give. First, of yourselves. Then, of your children. And then, of everything else you have in life. And you make sure that you give through faith a better sacrifice. You're going to have most churches are filled with canes, very few Abels. In our church, we have our share of Abels. We have some canes, but the majority of them are Abels, and praise the Lord for that, because of the way this church is built and structured. I get that. But the first thing I tell you, if your life of faith in verse 4, don't be afraid to give God the very best you have. Give God what's right. Don't give God what's left over. 
Don't keep it all for yourself and then what you don't want, then you pretend you give it to God like you care. Second thing, by faith was Enoch, by faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death. All right, the second thing is, verse 5 and 6, don't be afraid to walk with God when nobody else does. I don't care if it's your husband and wife relationship. I, I don't care what it is. I, I got guys all the time. Their wives are way out there in left field and they seemingly scratching their head. One of them said to me, oh, a couple of months ago, two, maybe six months ago, I don't know, he was coming in and talked to me about struggle with his wife. His wife doesn't want to do what's right. Doesn't want to come to church, want to do this. And he says, I'd love to get involved in church, but my wife won't do that. I, I don't know what to do. And I looked at him and I said, I guess standing up and leading your family is not part of the answer. You simply say, you know what? I'm going to church. You're coming too. I ain't going. Okay, I am going. I'm going to do, somebody in this family is going to do what's right. But that takes courage, see? That takes an Enoch. And I don't care if it's in your family. I don't care if it's your kids, I, I don't care if it's where you work. I don't care if it's in your friends. I don't care if it's in the church that you go to. Don't be afraid to walk with God when nobody else does. You'll pay a price for it. That's okay. You may, be a pri may pay a price for it with them, but they'll pay the price for it to the judgment seat of Christ. It just depends which price is right. Verse 7, by faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. And the third thing you want to know is in Noah, don't be afraid to do a work for God when nobody else will. Don't be afraid to work for God when nobody else will. Nobody else was going to build that ark. God found one man that would do it. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it shall be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Nobody wants to work today. Do the work. Don't be afraid. There'll be a price tag with the work. There'll be a price tag with the walk. There'll be a price tag with a more excellent sacrifice. Pay the price. Pay it. Don't get so loyal to your friends that you can't walk, sacrifice, or work for God. Don't get so caught up with your little bosom buddies on Facebook, my jerk, or you're an idiot, Facebook, where you have to all just band together and you can't do one thing for God and one work because of what somebody else might think. That's not faith. That's farce. That's phoniness. And uh, it's a thing where don't be afraid to give God the very best. Don't be afraid to walk with God when nobody else does. And don't be afraid to do a work for God when nobody else will. And then the last one, by faith Abraham. Don't be afraid to wander for God and go wherever God wants you to go when nobody else will. Right in the middle of the pandemic. He wants you to go down to a girl's home to teach the Bible. He wants you to go disciple somebody. He wants you to do this. He wants you to do that. Don't be afraid to go where God wants you to go. It's all by faith. <clears throat> you need to break out of this mindset of the Laodicean Christianity today. You need to discard the friend. Get them off of your 
Facebook. If you want some real good advice, cancel your Facebook. You need to dump them off there, keep them away from you, and just don't put anything in your world that's going to take these four things from you. You're up against the hour of your day. And there's enough crap you have to deal with out there without just dealing yourself into it. So don't be afraid to give the very best sacrifice that you can. Don't be afraid to walk with God when nobody else wants to. Don't be afraid to work for God when nobody else will. Don't be afraid to wander for God. Go wherever God tells you to go to do the work through the walk and give the very best sacrifice. That's why he opens up this chapter here. He defines faith in the first three, and then he gives us four men, and then he takes a break, if you notice, and then we pick up the, uh, he goes into a little discourse about them, and then we pick up some more people down here when we get into uh, um, into the rest of the book here. And so we'll, we'll hold up there.